Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. The 18th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on December 27, 2015 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 8, Translation, Installment 5, accompanies this talk. We're going to look at the book of Hebrews. Let's do several weeks now back in the book of Hebrews. We're in the middle. We're starting with chapter 7 of Hebrews. It's been over a year, so I want to give a brief review to orient us to what we're doing here. But you're going to need to help me. This passage that we're looking at is very complex. It's very involved, very intricate. I think Paul wrote Hebrews, but whoever it was was brilliant. And we're entering in verse 1 of chapter 7 into the main argument of the whole book. And it's just this incredibly insightful, brilliant argument. But it's complex, and so we need to kind of take our time and realize what he is doing, what he isn't doing, and how he's making his case. So I'm going to count on you to come at me with your questions to help clarify what's going on here, because... It's hard. It's kind of like juggling and keeping everything up in the air is a little difficult at times. But just a brief review before we actually get to chapter 7 itself. The book of Hebrews, I have been arguing, is a book written probably by Paul. I see no reason to not think that it was not Paul who was the author. He's recognized that there's this problem throughout the Roman Empire as he has traveled around and planted churches in various locations throughout the empire. Over time, the Jewish people who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah are beginning to have second thoughts, and they're beginning to drift away and think, well, this Jesus thing isn't everything that I thought that it was going to be. They presumably thought that by believing in Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, things were going to happen that were going to make their lives go better. Life was going to go better. The world was going to be better. The kingdom of God was going to come, right? And what has it got them? Instead, they've been persecuted, thrown in prison, ripped off, exploited, marginalized. They've become pushed to the social margins of the society. Nothing is going very well for them. It's been nothing but hardship and persecution ever since they've identified themselves as believers in Jesus. Then, having done so, they had these unresolved questions. And when you have unresolved questions and somehow your belief in Jesus is not paying off in the way that you think it is, all of a sudden those unresolved questions turn into doubts that make you wonder whether this is really even true. Is this the truth that we thought that it was? And they're beginning to have second thoughts about that and are just sort of backing off and drifting away. The book of Hebrews is Paul writing this circular that gets circulated throughout all the various urban centers of the Roman Empire, written to Jews, telling them to stay the course. Don't back away. Don't back off. Don't drift away from your 
conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. And most of the book is a series of warnings, or we might call them exhortations, exhortations to keep the course, and warnings about what if you don't. The stakes are really high, he's arguing. This is a life and death issue, whether you do or do not believe that Jesus is who we say that he is. And so we have a whole string of exhortations of one kind or another based on some kind of Old Testament theme where he's encouraging you to stay the course because this is the gospel that is perfectly and completely compatible and consistent with everything the prophets have been saying. So don't split. Don't back off. So the two issues that primarily are in view are the humanity of Jesus and the death of Jesus. How can Jesus be the Messiah? Because he was just a plain old ordinary human being, right? And as a plain old ordinary human being, that can't be the Messiah. We're looking for something superhuman to be the Messiah. And as we saw, the first several chapters of Hebrews deal, focus primarily on that issue, the humanity of Jesus. And Paul argues, that's what the prophets told us to expect. That's what the Messiah is. The Messiah is the human embodiment of God's authority, reign, sovereign governance of all of reality, embodied in an ordinary human being. So his ordinary humanity should not be an issue. It should not be something that disqualifies him from being the Messiah. And then the second issue is his death. And so far in the book of Hebrews, he's only barely touched upon that. He's touched upon it but he hasn't really dealt with it in detail. Beginning now, in chapter 7, that's going to become the primary issue that he's going to be addressing. He's going to try to make a very sophisticated argument to argue that Jesus' death on the cross is exactly what the prophets in the Old Testament were predicting. So that does not disqualify him from being the Messiah. It's a qualification, not a disqualification but he's going to build a fairly intricate argument to make that case. Okay, so that's where we're at so far through the first six chapters of Hebrews. We get to chapter 7, and all of a sudden we're confronted with one of the most bizarre passages in the whole New Testament, or at least so it seems. So what I want to do is talk about what it doesn't mean first and why it doesn't mean that, and then I'm going to come back and look at what I think it does mean. I'm not going to review the argument that's brought us into this. I'll make that a part of my critique as we go here. I'm going to read now, not from my translation, but from the New American Standard translation of Hebrews chapter 7, starting with verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually." Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office 
have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So there. Okay, we have to make sense out of this. If we just jump into Hebrews 7 and read that, the one thing we do notice, if we're at all familiar with our Bibles, is we notice that this is an allusion back to an account in Genesis. In fact, in Genesis 14, and let me read that account. This account is one of only two places in the whole Bible where Melchizedek is mentioned other than the passage in Hebrews we just read. It's only mentioned in two places. In the first place it's mentioned, and the most important passage is in Genesis 14. I won't read the whole passage, but just to remind you of the circumstances, there was a king of the east who decided to come into the Levant and raid in the valley of the Jordan. He came and he took a bunch of captives, and he took all kinds of booty out of these cities, raided these cities, And in raiding the cities, he raided Sodom and Gomorrah and took captive Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham, Lot and some of his family. And he took them captive. So he's leading them back to the east with all of this plunder that he's received. Abraham gets word from a servant who's escaped, and Abraham chases after them. And this is a snapshot into who Abraham was, that he can raise a private army big enough to go to war against actually five kings who've come on this raiding party. So Abraham was no small person in the ancient world. He goes after them. He defeats these armies, frees Lot, and brings Lot back, as well as a bunch of plunder with him. And then we pick up the story in verse 17 of chapter 14. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, this is the first time Melchizedek is coming up in Genesis. We have no background, no way of knowing who he is. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. That is, Abraham gave a tenth of all of his plunder to Melchizedek. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Okay, that's it. That's all we know about Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, and we'll talk about that in a second. He comes out and meets Abram. 
he blesses Abram, and Abram pays a tenth, a tithe, of his plunder to Melchizedek. And then the rest of that has to do with the king of Sodom. That's all we know about Melchizedek. Okay, going back to Hebrew 7 then, one very common reading of Hebrew 7 is to look at Genesis and say, well, here's what Paul is doing. Paul has gone to Genesis chapter 14, that account we just read, and he sees, recognizes that Melchizedek has something to do with Jesus, the Christ. And that's why Paul is saying what he's saying in the opening chapters of Hebrew 7. There are several really odd things that he says here. Now, I'm going to argue that they're more odd because the translators have rendered them the way they have than they would actually be if we were reading it and translating it rightly. But given the way the New American Standard has translated it, if you look at verse 3, what does Paul say about Melchizedek? He's without father, without mother, without genealogy. So one common interpretation looks at that and goes, well, who do we know that's without father and without mother and without genealogy and could possibly have anything to do with who this Melchizedek dude is? Ah, this is what theologians call a Christophany. This is the second person of the Trinity, the divine being who ultimately comes and incarnates in Jesus, who is actually pre-incarnating in this dude named Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was an incarnation before the incarnation or some kind of temporary incarnation and that's usually called a Christophany. In other words, it's the eternal divine being of the Trinity who is coming down and appearing in the form of a king and priest of Salem. Okay? Because how else do we explain him as being without father and without mother and without genealogy? So the reasoning would go. The same verse, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Paul seems to suggest that he's an eternal being. Well, if he's an eternal being, then we must be talking about a person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. Verse 3, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, it doesn't say that he is a Christophany explicitly, but being made like the Son of God, that must mean Melchizedek is an appearance of the Son of God. That's what Paul is saying. So this interpretation goes. Verse 8, it talks about, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And again, not quite as compelling, but he's an eternal being perhaps, is what that means. Or in verse 16, it talks about the power of an indestructible life who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Well, if that's who has an indestructible life, no mortal human being, we must be talking about the second person of the Trinity, and so on and so forth. Well, the problem with that, of course, is we read the Genesis account, If all we had to go on was the Genesis account, would we conclude what Paul concluded from Genesis 14? Is that the most reasonable, straightforward way of reading it? Did any of you, when we read Genesis 14, go, my goodness, he doesn't have a father and a mother? It's not mentioned, granted, but didn't we fill that in? (laughs) Didn't we sort of assume that this Melchizedek, even though we don't know who he is, 
has a father and mother and comes into the world the same way every other human being comes into the world. Did we assume that he's an eternal being? Not really. In fact, the most straightforward way to read Genesis 14, he's called there the king of Salem. Salem is the city-state that ultimately becomes Jerusalem. Salem, or Shalom in Hebrew, was the name of the city that when David took it was the city-state of the Jebusites. I assume it's a Jebusite city now. We don't really know, but in all likelihood it was a Jebusite city at this time, some kind of Canaanite city-state in any case. So Melchizedek is a Canaanite king over a Canaanite city-state who is functioning as the priest of the Most High God in the city-state. Well, how would we possibly reconcile that with him being a Christophany? Christophany would be an appearance of the second person of the Trinity that's temporary. He just kind of shows up. What, does he show up in a Halloween costume, dressed like the king of Salem and dressed like the high priest of the Most High God or the priest of the Most High God? That Clearly, I'm not going to get that out of Genesis. The most straightforward reading of Genesis is it really is what the text says he is. He's a Canaanite king who is also the priest of their God. So either Paul's an idiot and doesn't know how to read and is doing all kinds of weird, strange, bizarre things with Genesis 14, or he's not saying what we think he's saying. My contention is that he's not saying what we think he's saying, and we have to pay a little bit more attention to the argument and the context of Hebrews if we're going to understand what he's doing here. Now, I'm going to go back. I know this was over a year ago, but we looked at chapter 5, and I'm, going to, I'm still in the New American Standard here. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, and now he quotes from a psalm. And this psalm is the only other place that Melchizedek is ever mentioned in the Bible. Psalm 110. Well, first he quotes Psalm 2 and then Psalm 10. You are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2. Just as he also says in another passage, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Then he goes on, in the days of his flesh he offered, he gets down to verse 9 and 10, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Next verse. Concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, and now he goes into worrying about whether or not they are open enough to the truth that they're going to be able to receive what Paul has to say about him. But what he wants to do is talk about Melchizedek. In other words, what he wants to do is talk about Psalm 110 and explain what's happening in Psalm 110 and what the significance of Psalm 110 is to who Jesus is. 
So what we're going to have eventually, and it begins at chapter 7, verse 1, the place we're starting, what we eventually are going to have is an exegesis by Paul of Psalm 110 with an explanation of the implications of Psalm 110 for whether or not Jesus had to die. That's what he's going to do. That's what he's setting out to do. But he interrupts it with chapter 6 and warning them, I worry about maybe your heart is too hard and you won't be able to receive what I have to say. But he says at the end of that, but I'm going to press on anyway, and now we get to chapter 7 where he immediately starts talking about Melchizedek. So why is he talking about Melchizedek? It has nothing to do with Genesis 14. It has everything to do with Psalm 110. hope that's clear. He's exegeting Psalm 110, not Genesis 14. Okay, let me pause there for any questions that you might have. Isn't it possible that he had some other knowledge or information about Melchizedek other than what we have in the Bible? I mean... It's possible, but as I think we'll see as we go through here, if he does, it doesn't become relevant to his argument in Hebrews. Everything that he's going to argue from is coming right out of either Genesis 14 or Psalm 110. So, yeah, that's always a possibility, but it doesn't become relevant to this passage. Just to clarify, when it says that Melchizedek was the priest of God Most High, so that does not mean Yahweh. That means the Most High God of the Canaanites or whatever. The Yeah, okay. Yes, in all likelihood. That bothers a lot of people, that Abraham would come and be blessed by and pay tithes to a pagan Canaanite priest who worships a god other than Yahweh. But it seems to me that's the most straightforward way to read this. Now, it's possible that Melchizedek is a priest to Yahweh, but I think what's more likely is that Abraham, rather, is recognizing that Whoever you think the God Most High is, he doesn't know him as Yahweh. He knows him either as El Shaddai or El Elyon. But Abraham knows who the God Most High is. It's the God who's been making promises to him. Now, I have mentioned in the past, remember, I don't think Abraham is yet a full-blown monotheist in the sense that we think of monotheists, where... He realizes that there is one and only one God who will rules all of reality. It's entirely possible that Abraham is still thinking like a polytheist. But there is this God who's revealed himself to Abraham and made promises to him. And Abraham's life is centered around those promises that this God has made to him. Well, how would Abraham think about who this God is who's made these promises to him? In all likelihood, he thinks of him as the God Most High without really conceptually having made the transition of recognizing that there's one and only one God, one mind that controls all of reality from his transcendence. So Abraham may not be there yet. So if somebody is a priest to the God Most High, as far as Abraham's concerned, that's a priest to the God that has made promises to me and that I honor. But I think everybody else in Shalom, Salem, is thinking that their priest worships the top god of their pantheon of gods, of whoever their Canaanite gods are. I had to step out, so I might have missed you commenting on this, but why do you think Paul brings up the Genesis 14 passage? 
in his discussion of Melchizedek at all? Well, I'll answer that in a second. I don't know if you caught, I don't think he's primarily looking at Genesis 14. He's looking at Genesis 14 secondarily in order to understand Psalm 110. Okay. What he's really looking at is Psalm 110. Okay, but he's using Genesis 14 as kind of a way to, well, who is Melchizedek mentioned in the psalm anyway, and then goes back yeah. to Yeah, and I'll explain okay. what I think he's doing there. Yeah. Anything else? Okay, so I'll answer your question now. So he's interpreting Psalm 110, but what Paul is recognizing is what an odd thing that David says in Psalm 110. Well, let's read it. It's a short psalm. I want to get the whole psalm out here. Psalm 110 says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, right off, we know that this is a messianic psalm. Jesus uses this psalm in his arguing with the Pharisees. He asks them, when David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, who is my Lord that he's talking to, right? And the answer that Jesus has in mind is he's talking to the Messiah because there is one coming that David, even David would recognize, is greater than he. It's the son of David, the son of David who is to come, who is going to be the fulfillment of everything that God promised to David and his descendants. But there's one who's coming who will be the final and ultimate and real fulfillment of those promises. Well, whoever that person is, is David's Lord, his master. So Yahweh says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay, I won't go into the details of Psalm 110, but if we were, we'd recognize most of the things that are being promised to David's Lord to the Messiah figure in Psalm 110, are things that have been promised elsewhere. It's been promised to David that he's going to defeat all of enemies of God. He will rule over all of creation. He will be victorious. He will reign forever. He will reign with the very sovereign reign of God himself. All that stuff is just clearly commonplace in predictions about who the Messiah, what the destiny of the Messiah is. But something that Psalm 110 adds that's a new twist that has never been promised anywhere else is the statement, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The priestly role, the priestly function, has not been a standard part of your concept and picture of what a Messiah is and what a Messiah does. But here, in a messianic psalm, making promises to the Messiah, one of those promises that stands out to Paul is, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, you, the Messiah, 
are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, that's the part Paul wants to pick out of Psalm 110 and parse it. What is that all about? What's going on there? What does that mean? And what's the significance of that? Because that's a striking promise that Yahweh is making to the Messiah. So, but one of the striking things about that is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? What the hell is that? What's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? What is that all about? That's what he's going to focus on in the first part of chapter 7. We need to figure out what David meant when he described this Messiah as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And if we're going to understand that, we're going to have to understand what it is about Melchizedek that was striking to David. Okay? Now, we have to make a distinction between interpreting Genesis 14 and interpreting Psalm 110 because we have to understand what's going on in Psalm 110. Many of David's psalms are just poems based on his experience. He has an experience with God. He has an experience confronting the promises of God. He has an experience of this or that or the other thing, and he writes about those experiences. But every now and then, you have David writing a psalm where he's not just a poet, but he's also a prophet. And he's expressing a prophetic prediction in a poetic form in a poem. That's what Psalm 110 is. It's a prophetic prediction. Now, we don't know where this prophetic prediction is coming from. Is it direct revelation to David by God, by Yahweh? Could be. There's absolutely no reason to rule it out that David played the role of a prophet sometimes. Or was there another prophet of God who came to David and revealed a prophecy that that prophet had received, and David is just giving expression to that prophetic prediction received from another prophet in poetic form. That may be as well. We don't really know. That doesn't matter. But what does matter is that we have to recognize that we have fresh information in Psalm 110 that is coming by way of prophetic revelation This is not exegesis of Genesis 14. Paul is not understanding who Jesus is from Genesis 14, and David is not understanding who the Messiah is from Genesis 14. Do you dig? He's not interpreting Genesis 14 and saying, oh, I see from Genesis 14 that the Messiah is going to be a priest, like Melchizedek. How could you possibly know that? That would make absolutely no sense at all. But that's not what he's doing. So when we read him as if he's doing that, we make him seem like an idiot. No, he knows from direct revelation that the Messiah, among all the other things that the Messiah is going to do, he's also going to function as a special, new, different, unique kind of priest. That's going to be part of his role. And so David, in Psalm 110, writes a poem to give expression to that truth and to that fact. He's going to be a priest, an eternal priest, a priest forever, like Melchizedek. Okay, so the question then becomes, like Melchizedek? <laughs> what, what are you talking about there? That's what the early part of chapter 7 Paul is doing. Is Paul is going back now to Genesis 14 and trying to understand the mind of the poet David, 
What was the poet David imagining when he creates, and notice I'm using the word create, not discover, when he creates a symbol using the historical person of Melchizedek as a symbol for something in his poetry? Melchizedek is going to become a symbol of the eternal, timeless, extra-covenant priesthood that is the role that's going to be played by the Messiah. And so Paul is asking, what is it about Melchizedek that recommended him as appropriate for this symbol of this fact that he wants to convey in his poetry? Okay. So what does he discover? He discovers that, well, David probably in part had in mind his name, Melchizedek. What does Melchizedek mean? It comes from two Hebrew words, Melech and Sadiq. He's the king, Sadiqah, he's the king of righteousness. That's simply what his name translates into. And Paul is thinking that probably did not get lost on David, and that might in part be, that might be one of the factors that led David to move to Melchizedek and say, maybe he can be a symbol of what I'm talking about here in conjunction with some other things. He's also the king of shalom. Shalom translates into, we usually translate it into peace. Not Peace is not a great translation of shalom, but we translate it into peace. He's also the king of shalom. And Paul in particular, not infrequently, a handful of times anyway in the New Testament, uses shalom as the word that captures our eternal destiny. It's what we call eternal life. It's the prosperous, abundant fulfillment of our very being that we're going to experience when the day comes that we enter into that existence where there is no longer death and there is no longer evil, there is no longer corruption, there is no longer me to have to deal with in my own evil to have to fight and deal with all the time. I will be made right. I will be made good. Now, then I have attained shalom. I will have rest from all that is at enmity with God. Well, who's the king of shalom? Jesus. So Melchizedek, king of righteousness, who is also the king of shalom, by translation of his role and his name, who, and he says here, was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, so on. I'm going to start using my translation, if you don't mind. Let me actually read this whole section now out of my translation. Now this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, was the one who met up with Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, the one to whom, in fact, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all his spoils. In the first place, he was, by translation, king of righteousness. And then he was also king of Salem, that is, king of Shalom, king of peace. He was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Insofar as he was likened to the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. I think we need to read those two sentences together. We can't understand either of them without the other one. He was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What are we talking about? Insofar as he was likened to the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. It's his priesthood that he's talking about. 
It's not Melchizedek's existence that was without father, without mother, without genealogy, that had no beginning of days nor end of life. What Paul is commenting on is if you go to the Genesis 14 account, look what a mysterious character Melchizedek is in Genesis 14. I don't mean in history. There's nothing mysterious about him at all in history. But look how he comes across as so mysterious in the surviving document that describes the narrative. He just shows up. He comes out of nowhere, and he disappears just as mysteriously. He shows up, he does his thing, and he goes away from the account, and we never hear from him again. Never. Until you get to Psalm 110. And Paul is saying, I think all of you can relate to this. As you're going through Genesis, aren't you just struck by, boy, who's this dude? (laughs) What is this all about? Where is this coming from? He's playing an incredibly significant and important role in the life of this man, Abram, and we don't have the foggiest idea who he is. We don't know where his priesthood came from, and we don't know where his priesthood went. As far as we know, it has all the appearance of a timeless priesthood. It's just there. It's just a reality. It's just a fact. From the standpoint of the account of Genesis, that's all it is. We don't have any account of where it came from, how it started, who appointed him, who commissioned him, who authorized him. We don't have any account of who came after him, if anybody, or or how this priesthood ended. It's just there. It's just a fact. Well, what better person to pick as a symbol of a timeless priesthood, of a priesthood that is just a fact, other than the Melchizedek of the Genesis account. And so Paul highlights this. That must be what David was thinking. That was the poetic imagination turning Melchizedek into a symbol in his poem. Okay, let me pause there. Question so far. Thanks, Jack. Are you seeing any relevance to this passage from the fact that Melchizedek is king of Salem besides the fact that Salem and Shalom are connected. For example... I'm sorry, besides the fact that what? Besides Salem and Shalom. For example, do you see any importance to the fact of the location of Salem and the importance it would have to David and his sons? No, just because Paul doesn't mention it. Okay. yeah. The, the only thing he mentions is the translation of Salem as peace or Shalom. Okay, so the, where Melchizedek is from does not seem to be important. Yes, yeah, I don't think so. Okay, thanks. Yeah. The first thing that strikes me about Melchizedek and what David seems to might be thinking is he's a priest and a king. Mm-hmm. That to just say, well, that's all Paul's picking up on and explaining would seem to be missing a lot. But but do you think that that that's part of why? Oh, he absolutely. Yeah, I'm, no question about that. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing that obviously makes Melchizedek a potential candidate for the symbol that he wants, is he's looking for someone who's simultaneously priest and king. And Melchizedek immediately fits the bill there. Yeah, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that. But see, that becomes explicit in Psalm 110. That is absolutely explicit. It's a messianic psalm talking about the coming king and promising him that he's going to be given a priestly role. So he's both king and priest simultaneously at the same time. Well, 
where else are you going to go in the Old Testament to find someone who's both priest and king? One obvious candidate is Melchizedek. But interestingly, Paul doesn't think that exhausts. Because, see, the psalm doesn't have to say according to the order of Melchizedek. The psalm stands alone if you leave that whole stanza out. I have sworn, I will not change my mind, you are a priest forever, period. Why according to the order of Melchizedek? Well, that's what Paul is kind of worrying about in chapter 7, is why add that according to the order of Melchizedek? What was David thinking? What is he trying to convey and capture by that? Do you know how common it was for kings to also have a priestly role? In the I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. Because that's one thing that I was wondering about with the reference to him being like the son of God. If I don't, I don't know what Paul is doing here. <laughs> but if he's thinking about son of God, not with reference necessarily to Jesus only, but as kind of a role, could that be something that he is maybe picking up on, that Melchizedek has this kind of relationship to the God Most High because he's the king as well as the priest. So he comes by his priesthood through the role of kingship, not through priestly lineage or something like that. Can you just ask that again? I don't really know if my question makes sense. (laughs) Just that reference that he makes to being like the son of God. If he is saying... He doesn't have a mother or father or genealogy that makes him a priest, but because he has this role of being the king. But who's the he in your uh, question? Melchizedek. But the point that Paul is making is more than that. It's not just that he's both the king and the priest, but he's a priest perpetually. And I think that's what he's saying is, but being made like the son of God. Well, what does he mean by that? Who's being made like the son of God? Melchizedek is being appropriated and used, exploited by David the poet, in order to display, symbolize who the Son of God is. I think that's what he means by being made like the Son of God. That is, he's being made into a symbol that will describe the role and function and reality of who the Son of God is. Melchizedek by himself, the historical figure, wouldn't do that, couldn't do that. But the symbol, the poetic symbol that David is creating can do that. That's why he says being made like. It's David doing the making, not God. David making Melchizedek into a symbol that is alike and symbolizes, displays the Son of God becomes a priest perpetually. Well, we all know that the historical Melchizedek is not a perpetual priest. He died. He's gone. But the Melchizedek of the Genesis account, looked at in the right kind of way, has a timeless, perpetual priesthood like the Son of God does. And so he's being made into this image of what the Son of God is. Okay, so maybe that's where my question is coming from, which I think you did talk about. But why would David look at the Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and think, oh, he's a priest forever? Maybe I'm not making that connection as well. Why do you think that David... Yeah, what about Melchizedek makes him seem like a priest, an eternal priest or something? It's just what Paul says. We don't know what father qualified him to be a priest. We don't know what mother might have qualified him to be a priest. In other words, we don't know his genealogy. What qualified him to function as a priest? We know nothing about that. And we don't know when he started to be a priest. 
We don't know who the predecessor priest was or the priest before that. We don't know what priest came after him. All we have in the account is, as a matter of fact, in this snapshot of time, he was a priest to the Most High God. That's all we got. Well, it comes across in the account as kind of a timeless, abstract, transcendent priesthood. It's just a, his priesthood is simply a raw fact. We have no historical linkages to find the picture of what this priesthood is and where it came from. It's just a fact. And taking a mortal human being, that's the best you're going to get if you want somebody to be like the Son of God who literally occupies the role of a truly timeless priesthood. That's the best resemblance you're going to get. And other priests that are mentioned in the Old Testament, we have their lineages and their genealogies, so that they don't make as fitting, they're not as fitting of symbols maybe to pick for that. Exactly. To recommend them to David as an analogy. Exactly. In fact, he's going to argue a little later in the chapter, what do you have in the Mosaic Covenant? You have an endless line of priests who keep dying and are no longer priests, one after the other after the other. But the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, he remains as the priest personally to intercede to the end of time, unlike all the Levitical priests. Maybe you just answered this, but let me ask it again. I think it was frowned upon for a king to be a, serve as a priestly role and I think it was illegal. <laughs> I just can't remember where it is in the, in the Old Testament, but I think it was God put a plague on some king because he went into the temple and offered sacrifices by himself. Oh, you're I, talking about in Israel? In Israel, yeah. Oh, okay. So the question is, and maybe this, is what, this was your question, but where did David ever get the idea that the Messiah was going to have the priestly role mm-hmm. since he is not in the line of Levi? Mm-hmm. Where did well, David that's what I'm saying. That? I think it had to be some kind of direct revelation. Oh, okay. So, so that's new information then. Mm-hmm. Okay, I get it now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and see, that's why Psalm 110 is such a big deal to Paul. Where Paul's going in the argument is he needs to establish first and foremost that the Messiah has a priestly role. Then he's going to argue there's no way you can fulfill a priestly role without an offering. And the offering is not the same old bulls and goats that all the other priests offered because this is not that old covenant. This is a new covenant. And the new covenant comes with a new set of rules about what you offer and what you don't offer and everything. And what did he offer according to the terms of this new covenant? Himself. So that's where he's headed. But what he has to establish first is that as the Messiah, he was also this new kind of priest. Mm-hmm. He was predicted that he would be that. Well, you wouldn't know that if you didn't have Psalm 10 and perhaps there are other passages, but Psalm 110 is the most explicit promise that the Messiah is going to have a priestly role. So that's a huge big deal for his argument. He needs that. Sorry, I, heard, I actually heard you say that. But kind of just Thank you, Jack. Mm-hmm. I don't want to harp on this too much, but I suspect that the figure of Melchizedek was not as obscure either to Paul or to the recipients of his letter as he is to us. And I was just using the power of Google to find out. And sure enough, there's plenty of apocryphal stuff. And whatever you think about those texts, there's lots of stuff about him being born to a virgin and born with the mark of a priest. And then 
he was taken by the archangel back to the Garden of Eden and survived the flood and, you know, all this stuff about the figure. And so I suspect that they're referring to this common perception. Again, whatever you think of those texts, when he used the name Melchizedek, they probably thought, oh, this is this figure of story who had all these characteristics and was there's a lot of sort of allusions to divinity and other, other things like that that then seem like oh well then it's not this like who's Melchizedek and it's like oh you're actually talking about something that I know about okay possible but what's interesting is Paul doesn't do anything with that none of that information comes into his argument I don't know because I haven't looked at it but I know that after Hebrews is written people go wild with Melchizedek because we read this and we go oh boy oh good <laughs> And you have secret orders with priesthoods according to the order of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek comes over for celebrations. And I mean, Melchizedek becomes a huge, big, kind of legendary, figurative thing in all kinds of Christian offshoot sorts of things. And I I don't know how much of that Apocrypha stuff predates Paul or how much of that postdates Paul. I don't either, obviously, but I just was. Yeah. I just imagine whenever I hear someone refer to someone that's totally obscure, I go, was it really obscure? Maybe right, they're talking right. about something that they would Yeah, that's a great, that's that a great question. Don't. That's a great question. But the argument is complete enough that we don't need to know anything except what he tells us because he tells us what he's linking his argument to. And it's all stuff that we can find right there in Genesis or especially in Psalm 110. Okay, go a little further before we call it a night or whatever it is. So here are the five traits of the literary personage Melchizedek that is being used by David, appropriated by David to become a symbol. These are the things that Paul mentions. We've already mentioned some of them. His name, king of righteousness. His role, king of shalom. A fact of the literary narrative, namely that his priesthood appears as timeless. He uses that. And then he uses two facts out of the historical event itself. One, this man, Melchizedek, was a priest outside of and apart from the qualifications for priesthood within Israel, within the context of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. Melchizedek couldn't have been a priest in Israel. He wouldn't have been qualified. And yet Abram is recognizing his priestly role. So that's a big deal to Paul. There is someone who could never have served as a priest under the Mosaic Covenant who's being acknowledged by the father of all of Israel as having a bona fide legitimate priestly role in relationship to him. Well, what better symbol of the Messiah playing a priestly role than that? Because the Messiah, too, is going to be someone who never could have been qualified to serve as a priest under the Mosaic Covenant, and yet... According to Psalm 110, it's promised that it's a priestly role is precisely the role he's going to play in our lives. And then finally, Melchizedek assumes a superior status and role to Abraham. And Paul makes a big deal out of that. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and as he points out in this passage, the greater is always blessing the lesser. The lesser is blessed by the greater. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, making Abraham the inferior and Melchizedek the superior. Again, what better way to depict the Messiah than to have someone who, in the account, 
is presented to us in a position of superiority rather than inferiority. Because the Messiah is a Jew who's going to come up from among the Jewish people and yet be greater than all of them, greater even than Abraham. That's the Messiah who's going to be greater than Abraham. Well, what better symbol of the Messiah who's greater than Abraham and every other Jew on the planet than this figure, this obscure figure in Genesis 14 that Abraham somehow, for some strange, inexplicable reason, treats as superior to him. So he becomes a very appropriate symbol for the role the Messiah is going to play. So what is Paul's overall point here? In Psalm 110, David prophesies that God will send the Messiah who will serve as priest, even though as the Messiah, he would not be qualified to be a Levitical priest. In his role as Messiah, Jesus is assigned the task of fulfilling the role of priest predicted in Psalm 110. Jesus is that one that Paul is clearly hinting at that throughout here. He's kind of, you know, pointing as he goes, do you see? Do you see how Jesus fits what Psalm 110 is talking about? Do you get it? As a priest, Jesus the Messiah must offer up an offering. A new priesthood must necessarily be connected with a new covenant. These are all going to be part of his argument coming up. The promise of a new covenant implies the inadequacy of the old covenant. Paul's going to say, why do you need a new priesthood if the old priesthood was doing the trick? Why do you need a new covenant if the old covenant was good enough? So Psalm 110, by the very nature of its promise, is telling us that there's something not quite sufficient about the Mosaic covenant and our relationship to it and the priesthood that it establishes and our relationship to it, it doesn't quite cut it. Otherwise, God wouldn't have seen fit to promise another one. The offering that Jesus must offer will not be an offering in keeping with the Mosaic Covenant. It will be a new and different offering that accords with the New Covenant. And the offering that's offered up by the Messiah priest will be adequate in a way that the offerings of the Levitical priest is not adequate. And now we have to tease out adequate for what, and we'll talk about that in future weeks. But that's the structure of the argument that he's going to build from here. And you see where he's headed. So ultimately, he's going to say, Psalm 110, if we really understood the implications of Psalm 110, the Messiah had to come and die because he was a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, meeting the terms of a new covenant, which required a new and different kind of offering, which is exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross, is he offered that new and different offering that was adequate to be the basis for divine mercy in a way that the animal sacrifices never could have ever been. They couldn't provide a basis for God's mercy, but Jesus' offering did and could. Okay, unless there's some final questions, we'll call it an evening. I like your translation. When I read it over a couple times, it flashed in my mind was Jesus' comment to the Pharisees when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Do you think that Jesus had this particular argument? I mean, not the argument itself, but do you think he had this idea in mind? Absolutely, yeah. That's exactly what he meant. Before Abraham was around, 
I was the centerpiece of everything God wanted to do in history before Abraham was even born. That's how important I am. This doesn't have a lot to do with Christmas, but it's just striking to me. I remember growing up in the church, I couldn't figure out why Jesus was a big deal. Jesus was kind of like the handyman, the plumber, the electrician who comes and fixes the problem at your home. But once the problem is fixed, you don't really need the plumber until the next time it breaks down. You don't really need the electrician until the next time your electricity is not working. Jesus was always presented to me as the guy who fixed what needed to be fixed so that we could then go on and live our lives and live our lives abundantly and be happy and fulfilled and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, what he did is great and all that, but get over it. He's done. He did what he's supposed to do. But that is never the perspective of the New Testament. The perspective of the New Testament is he is a huge, big deal from before the beginning of time into all of eternity. He is the whole point. Well, that's what we're dealing with here, is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What, what Paul is going to center on is the priesthood of Jesus is why we get mercy. It's not his death. It's not his sacrifice. That's what he offered as a priest, but it's his ability as a priest. It's his effectiveness as a priest. It's his status in the eyes of God as this priest that he is. That's why he's our hope. Otherwise, he could have just died, paid the debt for our sins, and then gone on a nice long vacation to who knows where, and we'd never need to deal with him ever again, right? But that's not the situation. The one who came into the world on Christmas Day was the whole point of this story. He was the prima donna, the centerpiece, the main character, the protagonist of this wonderful, complex story that we're all a part of. And he will be our king, he will be our savior, he will be our priest, he will be our Lord eternally, and eternally important to us. Well, that's the dude that he's talking about here in chapter 7 and following, the one that's that important. Okay, I'll let you go.